Thanks for downloading this TV Live podcast. For more information, visit tv-live.co.uk. This is the TV Booth podcast with Rob Francis. My guest today is a broadcaster who began his career as a child actor, who then made the transition to corporate entertainment. His voice has been heard announcing big events including the 2002 Commonwealth Games and the Royal Variety performance. He's also voiced promotions for Eurosport, Disney Channel, ITV and the BBC. He's also known for hosting the challenge game show Stakeout and his work as a radio presenter. From his studio in Los Angeles, please welcome Anthony Davis. Hi, I'm Anthony Davis, and you're listening to the TV Booth Podcast. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rob. Very nice to be here. I should just point out for our listeners that I'm here in the UK, but Anthony is actually not in the UK. So, Anthony, where are you? Yes, I moved to Los Angeles in January 2017 to... uh, Sorry about the sound of my kids in the background. Um, Normally, if I'm recording, I lock them in their bedroom, but uh, today is a weekend. Um, moved here in 2017 to kind of not do radio anymore because I'd, you know, I'd been on LBC for nearly 10 years and then I moved to smooth drive time for three years and I'd kind of, you know, I felt like that chapter was done and so I always wanted to work as a voice actor as opposed to just a voice over and voice acting is a very different business and it really does have its hub here in Hollywood. Um, So now I get to work at the studios. I go into the Warner Brothers lot and to NBC Universal and it's it's quite remarkable I mean this really is the center of the entertainment universe and uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be able to to work here so let's start at the beginning of your career growing up did you always want to work in entertainment I think I did I was really shy I was, you know, a lot of entertainers are shy people and the entertainment is what is attractive to them because it's an excuse to make friends or to get friends or to at least get attention because, you know, it's the conversation starter that's often the problem for people. So, yeah, I did. I mean, my my earliest memories was doing puppets uh, and magic. That's what I was really into as a kid. And coincidentally, our next-door neighbour's brother-in-law was visiting him, and he turned out to be one of the biggest voice actors in history. His name was Paul Winchell, and he was the voice of Tigger, and the voice of Gargamel, and the voice of the evil Claude, you know, Wacky Races, and... You'll know his voice straight away, and in fact, if you listen to original Tigger and Gargamel from the Smurfs side by side, you're like, oh my god, it's the same guy. And Paul Winchell worked for Hanna-Barbera for decades. He lived in the Hollywood Hills, where I live now. Uh, He passed away a few years back. Um, And I met him, I must have been five years old, and it had such a huge impact on me that this guy had come into my house... And he had animated my toys, you know, I had puppets and he did some, because he was also a ventriloquist and he he had his own TV show in America. In the very earliest days of television, like 1952, 1953, he had the Paul Winchell show or the Paul Winchell and Jerry Mahoney show, I think it was called. And he had these two, Jerry Mahoney was a ventriloquist dummy and he was the most incredible vent. And 
he just inspired me. I just couldn't believe it. To have somebody of such calibre in your front room, because coincidentally his English brother-in-law lived next door... I mean, you know, I didn't have any contacts in the business. My family weren't in the business. And this was just one of those chance meetings that really lit the touch paper. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. So do you remember your first television role? My first job, well, my first appearance, that's interesting. I think I was a guest on Saturday Superstore, uh, sitting behind Mike Reed on BBC One on a Saturday morning. That was very exciting. And I just got invited on because our cousin was a record plugger and he had met Mike Reed or he knew Mike Reed. And so I think that's how I managed to get onto that as opposed to, you know, applying to be an audience member. Um, And you were actually on camera when you sat on Saturday Superstore, so I sat behind Mike Reed, and he was a huge star back then. I kind of couldn't believe it. You know, I I, I already was starting to really be drawn to voices um, on the radio and announcers on the television. I I found it fascinating. And so even from that age, I must have been around maybe 10 then, Um, I was starting to ask my parents for a microphone for Christmas as opposed to an action man or a he-man, as was very popular back then. So um, I I was starting to collect microphones and do recordings on a tape recorder, and I was starting to do impersonations. I did Alan Wicker was like at the age of 10, and I still have the tape of me doing Alan Wicker as, as a kid. I mean, it didn't sound anything like Alan Wicker, but I mean, you know, the the, the intention was there, Rob. So, yeah, you know, it, it, it does start very young. And so I was doing magic shows and I was doing puppet shows. And so Voices was always kind of part of that. So one of your earliest acting roles as a child was in Grange Hill. How did that all come about? Well, yeah, I, I joined a... I mean, this whole performance thing, we had a neighbour. I didn't have pushy parents, but we had pushy neighbours. <laughs> and 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 the neighbour was sending her daughter to a, a theatre school. And even though they'd closed admissions for the year, this neighbour had such a gob on her, she managed to get us both auditions. And I didn't have an act or, a, you know, I wasn't an actor really, but I did have a magic show that I could do for them. So I just performed my magic act and it got me in somehow. Um, it also helped that my mum cheated on the test with me when the teacher was out of the room. I came in and I was like, I can't, I can't fill in any more of this test. And and my mum was like, give it here, quick, quick, and like filled it all in for me. And uh, so they thought I was academic and they thought I was a good magician. So that was a good start. Um, and even during the early years of being in this theatre school, I couldn't sing, but I, I did have a voice. And so whenever we were doing like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I would always get the job as the narrator. And I would have to, you know, do the, do the spoken word sections. And I loved it. And I loved drama. And I loved acting. And I loved... You know, we used to have um, you know, voice coaching and everything. I just loved all that. And so it was, it was kind of wonderful, really. And yeah, I, I then started, because I was at this school and it had an agency for television, I got my first job, I think, was a Nesquik commercial for Germany. <laughs> and then I started to get extra work on, on TV shows. So I did Grange Hill from 1987 um, and then I started to get a little part in it. My character was called Jimmy Kennedy. And 
I mean, I wasn't very good, but I just loved it. You know, I just didn't have any confidence. But I, I was growing confidence the longer I was around other actors. And, you know, it was a bit like Emu's World at school. You know, everyone was just dancing and happy. And the year above me was Denise Van Outen. And Kelly Bright was the year below me. I mean, there's just an example of the two kind of... I was sandwiched in between some some great talent. So it was, Grainshaw was amazing. I was in Press Gang. That was something I'm really proud of because that was a Channel 4 cult show with Dexter Fletcher. Um, he just directed the Elton John movie, didn't he? The uh, Rocket Man film. And I have memory of sitting in a trailer with him and Julia Sawalla, who I think he was secretly dating, and he did an American accent in the show, and I had no idea that he wasn't American. And then... Coincidentally, his dad, Steve Fletcher, was my tutor on Grange Hill. So when we weren't on set, we were being tutored, and Steve Fletcher was my was my tutor. It's funny, isn't it? It's such a small world. So I actually spent most of my childhood on TV sets. I was in a show called Diary of a Teenage Health Freak. Um, there were so many shows back then because... You know, there was only four channels, so <laughs> there was there were they were making a lot of television, and I did a lot of kids' TV. It wasn't even called CBBC back then; it was before then. And then I got into a show called Tricky Business because of my magic, um, and a show called I Spy. I did. I think I did about half a dozen BBC children's TV shows, and then a few ITV and Channel Four shows as a kid. So. It was an amazing childhood. I mean, I never saw my family, really. You know, I was, I was just on set the whole time. So how did you make the switch from child acting to corporate entertainment? How did, that's a very good question. When I left drama school, I left school at 16. I didn't go to university or college because I was already working in television as a kid. And so I transitioned into working as an actor um, in television doing little little um, TV appearances. I was in with Ivan Kay in a show called Sam Saturday for ITV, made by Verity Lambert, who was one of the biggest producers of the day. He's now in Game of Thrones, I think, isn't he? I was doing little bit parts, but independently I was doing magic shows, you know, for corporate entertainment. So I was doing a lot of corporate work as a, as a magician. And then I, I kind of lost the bug for magic and I started doing hosting because I realized there was a gap in the market in the corporate entertainment business, which had huge budgets. It, it was before any recessions had come along. And so, you know, these companies would spend tens of thousands of pounds on parties and, and conferences and events. And so I positioned myself as a, as a host because I really like saying ladies and gentlemen. I found that, I just thought that was a really important sentence. So I would, I would host these conferences and I was a kid, you know, I was like 18, 19 years of age by this time. And I was really doing jobs that were really meant for people who were much older, but I didn't, because I didn't really have a childhood. I, I, I grew up very quickly. You know, my, my dad had left home when I was 10. So I'd had to you know, rise to the occasion of being the man of the house. And so my mum will admit now that, I, you know, I didn't really have a childhood or an adolescence. She doesn't remember me as a kid. She just remembers me as this, you know, older looking young man. And so with that, the hosting work just kept me really busy, uh, you know, doing like weddings as a modern master of ceremonies. Instead of a guy in a red coat, you got me in a tuxedo 
being a bit more comedic than an old school Toastmaster. It was just a different time back then. And, and so I just got a lot of experience with audiences, live audiences as a host and as a comedian and a kind of hybrid performer, um, you know, like an all-rounder. It's not very popular in England to be an all-rounder. Here in Los Angeles, they expect you to be able to sing and dance and act, I mean, and, and host and do radio and write. It's just standard. It's accepted. Whereas in England, they think you're a bit of a jack-of-all-trades. And that was part of the reason why I relocated, to be honest. So let's move on to some of the live events that you have covered, including the 2002 Commonwealth Games, Comic Relief, Eurovision and uh, Royal Variety performances. How much preparation do you have to do for events like these? Well, none, really. You just have to love it. You know, I'm a real anorak, Rob. I really am. I, I obsess about the things that, you know, you might obsess about as a viewer, getting into, you know, who are these voices and who are these... I used to love newscasters. I was obsessed with... My favourite was Philip Hayton, who used to present the one o'clock news on the BBC. But I loved his voice and his delivery, and I, I tried to emulate him. Uh, Peter Marshall, who, of course, you'll know, because he was the Envision presenter of uh, ITV, right? Yes, he was at Thames Television. Thames Television. So being in the London area, I, you know, I grew up in the West End, and I was at school in the West End, so... In London was the only TV I was really watching. And then on the radio, there'd be people like uh, Nicky Horn, who just had these great, quite relaxed, but very confident voices. And so I used to emulate other announcers, and I could I could do their voices. And, you know, like Graham Skidmore's voice, who was doing Blind Date and um, Shooting Stars, and... Of course, the original voice that a lot of people forget because they tend to uh, credit Peter Dixon. Patrick Allen was the original voice of E4. Do you remember those days? You're watching E4. And he had this very wonderful voice. I mean, he was a great actor, Patrick Allen. And eventually they started to use him in vision on E4 where he would kind of look at the camera. But, you know, he was getting on a bit. And so I think when he retired, Peter Dixon came in, who, of course, has, is a master of voices and was able to emulate that style. And then that style became that X Factor voice. And now Peter's kind of brought it back towards himself a little bit and is not having to impersonate Patrick Allen anymore. Um, so I, I was practicing all of these voices and I was impersonating Everybody. I mean, I, I, I tried to do everyone. And I, I, I think I had a list when I was like 20. I probably had a list of 100 impersonations that I'd, I thought I'd perfected. I mean, there was probably only five good ones. But I, I, I had a list of 100. And I could not get a voiceover agent for love nor money. I was trying really hard. You know, there are some jobs you can probably get without an agent. But to get commercial voiceover work, which is what I really wanted... You have to have an agent. And, and even with this repertoire, I just couldn't get an agent. And so I would make demo tapes and send them out and try so hard to follow them up. And eventually, there was an agency called Rhubarb. And I phoned them up and I said, oh, hello there. My name's Anthony. And I just wondered if you'd got my demo tape. I'm, I'm the impressionist. And they went, oh, uh, no, we don't think we've got your tape. But are you an impressionist? And I said, yes, yeah, I'm an impressionist. And they said, can you do Michael Caine? 
And I was like, you were only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. And so they were like, right, you got the job. And they literally booked me because I was able to do Michael Caine for them over the phone. And they had a job at that moment. And it was for a new TV channel called Avago that was coming onto Sky. And it was a gaming channel. And I was an animated remote control called Ari Avago. Hello, my name is Ari Avago. And, and I mean, it was, it was awful, but gee, it got me this agent. And, from, and that was it. I mean, I was in. And so from that moment, all this other stuff started to happen. The first job I got really, I mean, I started doing a lot of commercial work. I was the voice of, of Gaviscon and the voice of Twix and the voice of um, Sillit Bang. I mean, all of these regular commercials that we would see on TV. But um, in terms of the announcing, the live announcing, it was total fluke. Getting the job was total fluke. It was not the BBC that was looking. It was the production company that was making the Commonwealth Games. This is in 2002. The Commonwealth Games was being held at Manchester in the uh, city of Manchester Stadium, which was just being built specifically for the Games. And then it was going to become the stadium for Manchester City. I don't know anything about sport, but I think Manchester City. They must have just been going through demo tapes and they'd gone through agencies, you know, CD compilations of their voice actors. And they must have heard me and randomly chose me. And there wasn't really anything on my demo that made me uh, stand out as an announcer. I didn't really have any announcing stuff on there. It was mainly commercials. Anyway, they chose me and I got to be the stadium announcer for the Commonwealth Games 2002. It was opening and closing ceremony. Um, So I went up to Manchester. I think I was working on the radio at the time on Thames 107.8, southwest London's freshest mix of music. I was doing drive time. And so I got a, a little, you know, I was allowed a week off or something. And I went up to Manchester and I met with the producers, and these people, they were the biggest production company in the world. They're called Jack Morton, and they make the Olympics, and they, they make the games, obviously, and any of these huge events, they, they are one of the biggest production companies. And that was really the only time in my entire career I've had any luck, because everything else has been <laughs> exhausting to try and close a deal or get a job or get heard. I randomly got selected to voice the Commonwealth Games, and it went really well. And off the back of it going so well, I made it onto the front page of the Telegraph, I think, um, that did a whole story about the the games. And they wrote, because I was so kind of emotionally involved in this delivery, they wrote a whole piece about me on the front page of the newspaper and mentioned that I was in Grange Hill and that all this other stuff. And it it was crazy, really. The announcer never gets a look in in that way before, but it obviously had an impact. And that was the start of my announcing career. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TV Booth Podcast for details of forthcoming episodes. Pre-recorded from Overton, this is the TV Booth Podcast. So you've worked with many television companies over the years, including the BBC, ITV and Disney as a continuity announcer and voiceover, what are your best memories of working for these companies? Well, I've never actually done continuity announcing. I've wanted to and I've tried to, but it's a very different job and career to being a promo voice, which I was. 
I'm sure you know the difference, but I'll, I'll explain, is that a, a continuity announcer will work a shift and they'll have to be at the normally at the transmission centre and it's their job to be on call. So they would write their links, they would have to talk to time, they would have to make it work as a piece of presentation and um, and then they're not allowed to go very far. They have a bleeper or something because if the channel goes down and, and back in the day... TV was not automated like it is now, so somebody would have to throw a switch. So they could never really travel too far from this from the studio. Um, they would literally have to stay in the building for the five, six, seven hours or whatever their shift was. And so I, I never got to do that type of work um, because I didn't really have those long periods free. So my first um, TV announcing role, promo role, was for British Eurosport. I can't remember where it was, but I I remember going there dozens of times and I would have to do these amazing scripts. But as you can tell, I don't know anything about sports, so I didn't know who any of these people were. And I was having to say names like Dejiro Kato. Well, I think he might be a Formula One driver or I don't know, something, but uh, they, they were having to help me a lot. And you know, whilst I had a great voice for doing sports promos, I just didn't really, I wasn't really a sports person. And then this is kind of where it does help to have some interest in the subject. And that's why to your earlier question, what kind of research or preparation do you have to do? The answer is, if you are obsessed with certain genres or sectors of the industry, as I was, then you don't have to do any preparation at all. It's just in your DNA. After getting fired from British Eurosport, I, I, I think I got a job. I was the launch voice for Toon Disney, which was a, a secondary channel to the Disney Channel that was based out of the UK. There's Disney US and Disney UK. Um, and so I was the Disney UK launch voice for Toon Disney and also um, a promo voice for the Disney Channel. And this is where I met Glenn Tomset. He's basically doing the recording, so I'm sitting opposite him in front of the mic, and he's pressing the buttons, and we're chatting, and he's like, yeah, so you put it over there, and you do this, and I'm like, are you the voice of London Weekend Television? And he went, yes, as it happens, I was. And I was like, whoa! And I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I was so starstruck. And this is the thing about you know being in this industry, is that it doesn't stop you from getting really excited about other voices because you forget that your voice has become part of the the signature of television you you it's all about everybody else you know and it's like when people become famous they don't realize they've become famous they still are living their own life they just then have to start to adjust once it begins to affect them i presume not something i'll ever know anything about and that was the thing with me and glenn i was like he he was you know, he was just thrilled that somebody had recognised him, and I was just thrilled to meet him. So he and I became great friends, and uh, I managed to get him a job working at LBC many years later, and uh, he's still there now, so I'm really proud of him. The thing about working at Toon Disney, the, you know, the differential, and the thing about doing voices is that, you know, I had this whole armoury of voices, and you never really get to use them, you know, and as an impressionist, the odds of you getting a, an impression booking is very, very rare. Most of your work as a voiceover artist is your own voice. That's what they want to hear. They don't want to hear characters. It's very rare. I mean, I, I, 
used to do a, a little bit of TV. There was a show called The Last Word on Channel 4 that I used to work for quite a lot. And they had a little section with, uh, you know, Alison Jackson. She was the uh, photographer that used to do the looky-likeys. She'd do, like, the royal family. And she had a book published at Christmas once that sold, like, a gazillion copies. And so because I could impersonate anybody, I was brought in... A bit like Spitting Image, really, but it was a more of a modern version. So I think I did David Blunkett, a whole, a whole bunch of people. I did David Beckham. Victoria, is there any chance that I could get some attention here, please? You know, you occasionally get those bookings, but in the main, you get your own voice is your commercial voice, and that's what you get booked for, and that's what they're really looking for. And so with the Toon Disney channel, I started to watch the channel enough that I learned a lot of the characters in the cartoons, and then I would do the promo work in the voices of the characters. And now this hadn't been done before, and it was it was really exciting, and it was exhausting as well because... It was all high energy. You know, these promos are often 7 or 10 or 12 seconds long. And you've got to get a whole bunch of script in. And that's, that's really the secret to doing voiceover. It's not having a good voice. That, that obviously plays a part. But it's, can you shave half a second off that 15-second read, please? And you have to know how to hit the ground running and give them a version that is half a second faster than your previous take. And, and that is the craft, that's the skill, that's what's really difficult. ITV uh, had a really interesting department called NPU, which stood for Network Promo Unit. And I had a friend who had been working there because we'd worked together, we had the same agent, and we worked together jointly as the voice of Blockbuster Video in store. So her name's Shelley Blonde. You probably know of her because she's been the voice of ITV for decades now. And she uh, was also the voice of Heart FM for a while. And she was the original voice of Lara Croft. She and I just got put together on the Blockbuster Video gig. Um, we would sit together in the session in a studio in Richmond and and I'd say um, something like, for every bag of popcorn you buy, get a free drink with this and that. And it was so much fun going into Blockbuster and listening to ourselves over the tannoy. And bearing in mind, in those days, there was about 800 Blockbuster video stores, you know. So, I mean, that was quite a, a big deal. But she had started working for ITV promo unit, and that's really what alerted me to it. And so my agent, which was her agent, got me an audition for the ITV NPU. And I went along and the way NPU worked was they had a roster of voices that they would use regularly. So I think there was like half a dozen of us. And we would be in on different days. So I would be in on a, on a Wednesday, for example. Shelley would be on, on, in on a Thursday. Uh, so we didn't really cross paths when we were there. But the way it worked at ITV, this would be at the South Bank uh, Studios, where ironically I'd worked for years as a warm-up man, and I was now coming into ITV as the voice of ITV, which was, you know, the most amazing shift for me career-wise. You know, warm-up man, you're very much at the bo bottom of the list. And, and, and you know, suddenly to be the voice... And, and I knew the people on reception. They'd be like, oh, are you, are you warming up today? And I'd be like, no, no, I'm the voice of ITV now. <laughs> they, had, they had no idea I, would, I even did voiceover. So I would go and sit in this studio up on... You know, I think it was on the eighth floor or something. I would sit there 
And you would basically wait for a producer to come down from upstairs with a script and an edit of a promo that they'd made, and they'd come down and use you to record their promo. Now, sometimes you would go in and you would only get one recording because you know, they were working independently upstairs. There'd be a whole team of people making promos uh, for different shows. And sometimes you get picked and sometimes you didn't get picked. And it would be a four-hour booking and you'd sit there and just chat with the sound engineer waiting. And then eventually a producer would show up normally five minutes before the end of your booking and they'd be like oh you couldn't quickly do this one could you and so you'd be like oh okay and you get the script and you sit there there's no second takes in this business this is the other thing about being a a promo voice or a commercial voice you know you really have to get it right first time your energy needs to be in the right place you can't say oh I've got a bit of a sore throat today you know you really have to be on your game and I was lucky. I never really got sore throats. I wasn't that person. And I, again, think that's why I managed to build a career both with the BBC and, and, you know, here with ITV, because I always said yes. And so they'd give you the script and you'd have to do the Evening Standard British Film Awards on ITV1 or similar, you know. And I used to do a lot of sporty ones for ITV. And back then, you know, they were branded ITV1, ITV2, ITV3, ITV4. And I really enjoyed that, you know. On ITV1, I had that very impactful style. And so they used to give me promos that suited my voice. Occasionally, you'd do a voiceover for Lovejoy on ITV4, and you'd have to talk very quietly. I was also very good at doing fast reads. I could I could read very, very quickly, and, and that was very useful to them. And, and then at the same time, I was working for the BBC. I think I was the voice of uh, TV Moments, which was a show that uh, Jonathan Ross used to host. I would announce him. Uh, the Alan Titchmarsh show I did for ITV for a long time. Ladies and gentlemen, Alan Titchmarsh. <laughs> and that was all I had to say. And that was uh, and that ran for many, many series. Uh, Eurovision, that's right. That was the big one for me that was really exciting because that was again live and it was hosted by Terry Wogan. And he was probably one of my favourite radio hosts of all time. And he was as nice as everybody said. And this was for the uh, Eurovision Making Your Mind Up shows where they would choose the British entry. And I would stand, you know, on the side of the stage and go, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Terry Wogan and Natasha Kaplinsky. And then I think a year later it was, please welcome Terry Wogan and Fern Cotton. They would find younger and younger female presenters to stand next to uh, Terry Wogan, who was getting older and older. So that's kind of how it worked back then. But uh, he always remembered my name. He'd always come up to me um, and say, oh, hi, Anthony. It's so great to see you back here again. And I really found that very, very moving that, you know, he had the weight of the world on his shoulders uh, hosting a live TV show. And to remember the name of the announcer, who, let's be honest, barely had a line, was kind of amazing. And that's why everybody loved him, not just because he was the best at his job, but he was a really genuine person. And I do think he is one of the greatest losses to the broadcasting business. Absolutely. We all miss Terry Wogan. He was one of the country's best broadcasters. Let's ask you now about uh, outtakes. Anything going wrong in your career? Have you got any funny stories? (laughs) Um, So the biggest thing that went wrong for me was actually the thing that got me started. It was at the Commonwealth Games. The Queen was late for the show 
And we'd done a rehearsal where I'm sitting, they built a little booth for me up behind the Royal Box in the stadium. And I'm on my own, but I've got a little uh, mixer panel in front of me, the mic, the headphones, a little TV monitor that's showing the BBC One coverage. We'd rehearsed it so that I announced... Uh, if I can remember my words, I think it was, Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Her Majesty the Queen, accompanied by His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh. So there's the, there's the voiceover. And then they go pyro, 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 and the gates open, and her maroon, bulletproof Bentley drives in through the gates around the stadium, and she gets out and goes up the steps to sit in the royal box. And so we'd rehearsed it without her in the car, obviously. It was just her driver. And when it came to doing it, there it was pyro, 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 and me going, Her Majesty the Queen. And the gates opened and, and there was nobody there. And apparently the Queen works to her schedule. You know, she'll try and fit you in. But ultimately, if she's got her curlers in, then you've got to wait for her to take them out. Bear in mind, this is live on BBC One. This has got a billion viewers around the world. And we hadn't rehearsed any contingency. The gates open, nothing happens, and then the director says in my ear, Anthony, say something. So I look at the monitor and I can see that they've cut to this overhead shot. They had like a crane up high that showed the stadium. And you could see the searchlights and the sound department played in some ethereal underscore music. And I started just busking, ladies and gentlemen, this is the biggest event England has ever hosted. Just saying anything, after about a minute, I started to run out of stuff, and I've got about 60 pages of script in front of me. So I just started announcing the names of the countries to try and get the crowd, you know, 70,000 people cheering along. So I'm like, Brunei, Dar es Salaam, and about three people cheer there. So I was like, oh, I better choose one with a slightly larger crowd. So I'm like, Australia! And then obviously there was a huge round of applause and started to get something going. I mean, I'm sure this is on YouTube somewhere, but it, I mean, it was pretty embarrassing. You know, the whole world was watching and I really hadn't prepared for this. And in hindsight, I probably should have had some backup material, but I'd never done a job like this before. And nobody, they hadn't given me anything. They'd only given me the, the, the script. Anyway, in my ear, the director says, OK, she's ready. And then seamlessly I took it from, and now, will you please welcome Her Majesty the Queen, accompanied by His Royal Highness, the Duke of Edinburgh. And then the, the gates open. In came the Bentley, bang on time with the announcement, and it just worked so well. And I could hear not just the director in my ear go, well done, but every other department, sound department, lighting department, pyrotechnics, show caller, they were all like, well done, well done. Because, I mean, it really was, the heat was on. And it's times like that where all of your experience as, you know, for me, my experience was doing live hosting, the corporate work that I'd done, the audiences I'd worked on, you know, the, the TV warm-up I'd done, which was a whole other side of the career. You know, there was, there was so much there that I was drawing upon to not poo my pants. Because, of course, a big part of this job is not soiling yourself. <laughs> and, and, and that's really what they're after. You know, they want someone who's going to show up and not bottle it. And they'd probably rather take someone who didn't have as good a voice, knowing that they were going to deliver, rather than someone that had the greatest voice and, and couldn't. I'll, I'll go back a little bit because I'd been headhunted 
by John Sachs, who you probably know as the son of Andrew Sachs and as the voice of Gladiators. He had his own voiceover agency and he'd, it was the only time I've ever been headhunted and he phoned me up and he said, hello, is that Anthony? And I said, yes, it is. He went, this is John Sachs. <laughs> I thought, I know exactly who you are because I've been a massive fan of yours my whole life since I heard him on Capital Radio in, in the 80s. Uh, I went into his office and I told him that, you know, I want to be a, an announcer and I want to do the Royal Variety Show because the only show I ever wanted to do was the Royal Variety Show. When I was a kid, as a magician, the Royal Variety Show was the pinnacle of entertainment. Obviously, now it doesn't really have much cachet. But in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s, really, if you got a Royal Variety, that put a stamp on your career. That basically said you were good enough for royalty and you could work anywhere. And John Sachs was the voice of the Royal Variety Show. And when I told him that I wanted to do it, he was like, I don't think so, friend. Uh, <laughs> but the thing that made me sad was he recorded it at home. He said, oh, yeah, I just do that at home. You know, I just tape it, send it down to the BBC. And I thought that's not how the Royal Variety should be done. You know, you should be standing in the wings in a tuxedo. Anyway, cut a long story short, I made a version of me doing the Royal Variety Show and I just guessed who the acts would be and I produced it at home and I added audience applause and I sent it to the BBC and they, and, they, and they liked it. Because I'd done the Commonwealth Games, they knew who I was and they called me in for a meeting and I said, the only thing is though, BBC, I really want to do it live because I think it's going to make a huge difference to the quality. And bless them, they let me do it live. And so I did, um, I think my first one was in 2004. So for the Royal Variety shows that I did, I wore a tuxedo, I stood in the wings. My ambition, you know, from a child, from the age of 10 doing shows, was to be on the Royal Variety show. And I wanted it, obviously, originally, to be on as an act, as a magician or as a compare or something. But obviously, as my career went more voice and, you know, I never wanted to be famous. I always was very shy in public. So I knew that that side didn't suit me. So to be the announcer on the Royal Variety was actually, for me, I mean, I, I that's kind of why I gave everything up, because I was like, I'm never going to top this. And it's, it's a personal ambition are the ones that are really important. It's not really about fame and fortune, which is what society might think is where your ambition should lie. It's all about what your personal ambitions are. And for me, I just wanted to be on the Royal Variety Show. And so to have done more than one for the BBC, because it used to alternate between the BBC and ITV um, each year. Now it's just with ITV. Uh, it was just such a wonderful thing. And I got to introduce Liza Minnelli and Barry Manilow. I remember chatting with Barry Manilow for 20 minutes backstage once because I'm in the wings, you know, and he can see I'm the announcer. And we were, I was wearing a pair of comedy cufflinks that I think he was attracted to because one had Dean Martin and the other had Jerry Lewis and pictures on them. And so we ended up chatting. I'm like, I'm chatting with Barry Manilow backstage. And then Gary Barlow came over to me and we were just chatting and he's playing his guitar. And then another... One of Take That came over. Howard, is that his name or is he in Boyzone? I've no idea. And then the little one came over and then I don't think Robbie Williams was with them. I think they were they were four then. Before I knew it, they were rehearsing their whole thing in the wing and I'm literally standing in the circle with Take That doing like a private concert. I mean, these are the great moments, really, that are very personal to you. No one will ever really know about them, apart from through the TV booth podcast, of course. But um, this is how you know you've made it.
because as an announcer, to to be on these types of shows is just wonderful. And uh, I think these days they've got the guy from Downton Abbey doing the voices on the Royal Variety Show. So, you know, how times change. So let's move away from voiceovers and announcing for a moment and talk about the show for which you'll probably be best known for in the UK. And that is, of course, the challenge game show Stakeout. How did you become the host of the show? How did it all come to be? I had been working as a game show host in the corporate sector because this is back in 2001. And this is when I was like a jobbing actor. I was doing anything. You know, I hadn't quite made it into the announcing business. I hadn't quite made it um, as a TV actor. I was doing like little bit parts. Um, and so I was working as a warm-up man in for, the, for ITV, strangely. I used to warm up a show called the Late Night Live, which was also called Thursday Night Live and Tuesday Night Live. And it was it was made by Carlton Television originally. Um, and it was a debate show that Andrew Neal and Nicky Campbell used to host. And it was live once a week. And uh, so I got my experience really for politics, which I ended up going on to do as a presenter on LBC, by working with these great TV journalists. And I never really warmed up entertainment programs. Most of my warm-up work was was political because I was I was a comedian but I was more sensible and serious. I I I was I, I don't know why it was just it was my thing, you know, maybe I was a bit too grown up. I wasn't silly enough, but I got asked to go and do warm-up for a game show at the Maidstone Studios in Kent um called Defectors. And Defectors was made by Challenge. I hadn't seen it. I didn't really know anything about it. I I really didn't want to go to Kent because I really only worked in London. You know, if you grow up in London, the idea of going to the regions to kind of start your career seems a bit alien, whereas obviously a lot of people that grow up in the regions start in the regions and then move to London. So I had this privilege, really, of already being in London. So to, the idea of going <laughs> to Kent was... I just was like, really? Okay, but I I went and did it because in those days, you know, beggars couldn't be choosers. And I think I got a a, a week's work or a couple of weeks' work warming up on on defectors. And they sprung a screen test on me. The the guy, one of the producers came up to me. I think it was Arch Dyson who used to... He was actually the exec producer on The Price is Right and Generation Game. You know, he'd, he'd worked with Bruce Forsyth quite a lot. And he came up to me and he said, you know, I really like your warm-up. Um, we're thinking of screen testing you. It was a surprise because I just finished doing an episode. We used to do three or four of these a day. And it was a real blue rinse audience. That's what we used to call the old ladies that would love to come and watch game shows because they're only people that weren't working and were free in the day. And... He took the mic off me and he said, would you mind, ladies and gentlemen, if we you stayed behind to watch Anthony do a screen test? And bless Richard Orford, who was hosting that show, he kind of stepped aside and, and was very kind to me about this because, you know, any other host would have kicked up a right stink. And, you know, they put me on the set, mic'd me up, and I had to read the autocue, and, and it was the first time I'd ever, ever read autocue. But because I'd just done a day's work in front of a live audience, I, I was on fire. The screen test went really well, and that's how I got Stakeout, which is what they were thinking of me for, which was a format that had been created. Um, and 
uh, you know, there's a couple of game show format companies. All they do is they just write game show formats and try and get them away. They all want to make as much money as Who Wants to Be a Millionaire did, you know, as a licensed brand. Uh, Stakeout, sadly, never became that multi-million dollar opportunity. But um, I ended up coming back to Maidstone and presenting it for, I think we only recorded for two or three weeks, and I stayed in the Maidstone Hilton, and we did three or four episodes a day, and it was the best thing I'd ever done. I had never done anything quite so compelling and exhilarating. It was hard work. I was exhausted. I had terrible acne at the time. I used to get, my skin was really bad and I remember being really depressed about having this bad skin on camera. And if you look at it now, I still, you know, I still look pretty terrible on that thing. I was wearing this giant suit, huge shoes. I mean, I looked like Coco the Clown, to be honest, but um, and I wasn't paid very much for that. And I never got a repeat fee or a residual. I literally got paid for the for the few weeks work. And that's it. And, and it's been on Challenge TV pretty much every week since 2001. I think it launched in 2002. It's been on pretty much ever since. And I still get messages from people saying, are you that guy from Stakeout? Um, and, I mean, it wasn't a great show, to be honest, but we got through the trivia quickly. You know, it was a very fast show. I think that's why people liked it, because there was a lot of questions to answer and you could really play along at home. I remember giving a lot of money away to a guy called Mark, who's now that guy on The Chase. What's his name? Oh, um, Mark Lebet. OK, well, he, he was he was one of my contestants. And he kept winning. I think they had to stop him in the end because <laughs> he was a professional game show player. You know, there's a lot of pro game show people that just make a living from winning TV game shows. There's been a lot of um, discussion on TV forum recently about um, the voiceover who introduced Stakeout. Now, I say it was John Sachs. Others say it was you. Was it you? Well, I wanted to get John Sachs to do it for obvious reasons, but um, no, it was me. They didn't have the budget for it, and I don't know that they were going to have an announcement, and I remember standing with the exec producer in the gallery when we were watching back an early episode, and I said, or a rehearsal, I think, and I said, could I, like, announce myself at the beginning of this? I'll do it in a slightly different voice. And they said... Well, let's try it. And so I think I recorded two or three of them. Please welcome your host, Anthony Davis. (laughs) And so I would have to come on to my own announcement. That's kind of like end of the peer comedy, isn't it? You know, that's how comedians used to bring themselves on stage. And then they'd make a joke about it once they got on. And they go, oh, you know, that was me, don't you? You know, so, um, yeah, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Oh, it is. Oh, it is. Um, So you've done television voiceovers corporate work, game show hosting, and you're also a very popular, well, you were here in the UK, a very popular radio presenter. How did the transition to radio happen? I always loved radio um, because of these voices, you know, the, the the craft of radio. I found it fascinating. And and Chris Tarrant would do, would do the breakfast show on Capital Radio in London. And back then there was only three or four stations. It wasn't anything like it is now. So I would listen to LBC at night to Robbie Vincent doing Nightline, which was the 10pm show on LBC, which was a really intimate 
you know, news and social affairs type program. And, and I was just fascinated by him. And this is going back to me being like 12 or 13 or 15 years of age, I would listen to Robbie Vincent. But in commercial radio, Chris Tarrant was the biggest star. And I found it fascinating that when he was about to leave Capital Radio because he tried to leave two or three times because it's hard work. You know, in radio, it's really interesting that the best slot on the station is the worst slot on the station because if you get the breakfast show, you've got to wake up at three or four o'clock in the morning and to be on air for six. And that's no life. You know, it's hard. You get paid extra because obviously the hours that you're keeping but you're the biggest star on the station and I found it fascinating when he tried to leave that they a they wouldn't let him and they I think they paid him a bit more to stay when he did announce that he was leaving they really couldn't replace him Rob it fascinated me that this whole talent pool in the UK that there wasn't a kind of all-round entertainer with a good voice who knew the craft of radio that was able to really take on the Capital Breakfast Show. In the end, they got Johnny Vaughan, but it was it was touch and go for a while. You know, they, they really didn't know. And, and this I found fascinating, just from a business perspective. And so I just decided to down tools of, of everything that I did, all the corporate entertainment that I was doing and all the gigs. I was traveling the length of the country doing these bookings as a, as a host and as a comedian. I, I just stopped everything and I got a job or the only job I could get in radio, which was working at Thames 107.8 in Hampton Wick in Middlesex, which was just past Kingston, kind of Richmond way. And um, because, as I said earlier, you know, being from London, obviously you can't get your first job on a big London station. So you have to go a little bit outside to find somewhere that will employ you. And I got a job with them doing weekend breakfast And unbeknownst to them, I'd been doing hospital radio the whole time. So during all of these years, you know, having all these other jobs in entertainment, in my heart, the hospital radio, I just loved it. You could do a show. I'm a control freak, so I was able to be in total control. I've always loved technology. You know, I could literally take a mixing desk apart and put it back together and save you a dozen pieces. Um, I was collecting microphones from the age of 10. You know, I knew how to use them. And obviously, I loved the news and I loved people from working with audiences. And for me, radio just encompassed everything that I was really into. I'd done it at Great Ormond Street Hospital from the age of uh, 18. I started there. Uh, at Radio Gosh, which I think I did for two or three years. And then I moved to another hospital where I am still the chairman of the charity 27 years later, still involved with them. And, uh, you know, I've built the radio studio for them, you know, rebuilt it, installed it. I build all the computer systems. I set the mics up. I process the mics, EQ the mics, choose the mics. And also I train presenters there and I've probably trained, I don't know, maybe close to a couple of hundred presenters over the years, some of whom have gone on to do massive things. I guess my biggest trainee is Charlotte Hawkins, who now presents Good Morning Britain. And we're still friends all these years later. So Hospital radio was kind of in the background throughout the whole of my life, but you just never really spoke about it when you're working in broadcasting because it it was, you know, it's like it's a training space. It's like a sanctuary. And so when I went to work at Thames FM, I was already skilled. I already could do radio. And um, 
I just hadn't done it before for a living. And it wasn't much of a living. I think I got £50 a show um, and I would have to get in at uh, 5.30 in the morning and unlock the building and do the security code. And it was, you know, scrape the ice off of my Mitsubishi Colt Mirage 1985. Try and remember the burger alarm code without setting it off. Turn the transmitter from automation, overnight automation into live mode. Um, You know, turn the lights on and basically start your show. And Oddly, the chairman of Thames Radio was a local person that you may have heard of. His name was David Jacobs, arguably one of the most legendary voices on British radio. And he used to come in occasionally and sit with me. And he was very sweet. Hello there, he used to say. And he gave me his mobile phone number. Any time you need anything, just give me a call. It was just remarkable. I couldn't believe it. So, you know, doing Thames gave me confidence. I met some amazing people. Um, Sam Walker, who recently was on BBC Radio Manchester and Five Live. She just moved to Arizona and she used to come to Los Angeles and see me a bit recently. Um, A guy called Rick Adams, who used to be on uh, Nickelodeon, I think. Um, He's now out here in Los Angeles working as well. Friends that I made back then in 2002... I'm still very close with now, and everyone's done really well. So that was really my switch into radio, and I decided I would just stop doing all my corporate comedy and hosting, and I would just focus on radio. Uh, I think it was because I was voicing at Disney that I got to meet a guy who was producing at Disney but also worked at Capital Radio as the program director of Capital Disney, which was a radio station exclusive to the Disney Channel. He kind of brought me in to host a radio show called Cash Mountain on Capital's DAB channel, which was called back then Capital Life. So I basically went from working at Thames for a couple of years to going to work at Capital Radio in Leicester Square. I never got to work at the uh, famous Euston Road Tower, you know, they used to say at the top of the Capital Power Tower, when in fact they were just on the first floor. But I did spend 20 years working at, uh, at Leicester Square. And ironically, when I was at Great Ormond Street Hospital Radio, I was making the tea for a friend of mine who worked at Capital. His name's Paul Fear. And I was 19. And I would go in with him and he would present the Love Zone uh, 10 p.m. on Capital FM. And I would go in and make the tea and hang out with him. So I was actually in the Leicester Square building many, many years before I started working there. So I already knew the building. It's weird. I like this pull back to that to that building in Leicester Square so many times over the years. So that's really the, the transition from, from TV to radio was just making a concerted decision to start doing radio because Chris Tarrant couldn't be replaced. And I gave myself 10 years to get the Capital Breakfast Show. I've obviously extended that goalpost now to 35 years. <laughs> so... You are now living in Los Angeles. What are you up to at the moment? Are you still doing corporate work? It's so different in the US to being a, you know, they call it voice acting out here. It's, you know, you're not really a voiceover artist like you are in in the UK. I did a voiceover uh, a few weeks ago here in LA for Thomas the Tank Engine. It was a a non-broadcast animatic, which they use for the animators. And I had to be the voice of a train or a couple of trains. And there was a voice director. There was uh, two clients there was an engineer 
There was an engineer's assistant. There was someone who pressed record on the recording machine. And then there was a studio manager who was like setting up the mic. Six or seven people just for me to do a non-broadcast animatic. Whereas in London, if I was doing a voiceover for a very similar thing, it would probably just be me and the engineer. And we'd work it out for ourselves and maybe email it to the client and they go, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Entertainment is is everything here. We have kings and queens. They have Frank Sinatra and Jerry Lewis. You know, that's their, that's kind of how high it goes. Those were the biggest stars in American history. And, and so they bow to, to the entertainers. And I find it fascinating. And that's partly why I wanted to live here because, you know, I love show business and, you know, England is, is just different. Like I said at the very beginning, you know, if you're an all-round entertainer, you're a jack-of-all-trades in England. In America, you're a superstar. Well, you're a superstar here anyway. Um, so to close things off, um, what advice would you give to anybody who wants to become a voiceover artist or even an announcer? You really need to have a, a voice of your own. You know, it's not it's not really the thing to have multiple voices that you can go to and to to impress people with. And the industry has changed a lot. You know, my voice is London, but it's a kind of neutral and warm. And so we would describe a voice with, you know, you talk about its tone and its colour, brown, you know, and, and brown and hot. <laughs> That's, that's, I'm doing a steaming hot brown voice for you right now. It's be good for you to get to know the, the, your vocal characteristics. What, what is your offering? Um, and why is it different? Why is it interesting? And these days, you don't have to have a BBC voice. You know, it, that's not really the calling anymore. They're really interested in natural, conversational, regional approachable voices and so the industry has changed hugely now obviously peter dixon is a case in point of the announcer i mean he is an announcer's announcer's announcer and he has built a business now as being the voice it's very unlikely that anybody else would be required to do something like that now because they'll just get peter whereas if you are uh, someone who has an interesting sound, a bit like Marcus Bentley when Big Brother started, and to suddenly have this ironic Geordie being the voice was really interesting, wasn't it? And then they liked it so much that they moved him into Channel 4 presentation. You know, he got to work for Channel 4 even when Big Brother was not in season. You know, that's an example, really, of where it's gone now. But you will need an agent, and, and still it's very hard to get work directly with, with clients. It's fine if you're working for corporate clients. You know, I, I used to do a lot of pharmaceutical reads and corporate reads, and welcome to LinkedIn. For the next 10 minutes, I'm going to explain how you can create a resume. That type of thing is a corporate voice, and... There'll always be work for people like that. But if you want to get into commercial work, as I did, as, you know, doing these big TV campaigns, then you need a voice agent. And I was with Rhubarb for, for many, many years, and then I moved to an agency called uh, Just Voices, who I'm still with in the UK. And, uh, and in the US, I'm represented by an agency called Vox. You don't get to communicate with employers in the voiceover business. You just communicate with your agent. You go to the job. You don't know how much you're going to get paid. You don't really know 
much about it till you get there. So you can't really do any preparation. And increasingly these days, certainly here in America, they don't even want you to come in. You know, if you've got a studio at home, as I have, they would much rather you stayed home and did the work and just sent it in. You know, you never even get a chance to network or press the flesh. So my advice really is get a nice mic and set up at home, learn about sound, take an interest in microphones, learn about the proximity effect where you can talk quietly and get really close and have something very intimate or you can be further back and go, and that's your Saturday night on BBC One. (laughs) A great way to finish everything off. Anthony, thank you very much for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you so much, Rob, and uh, well done to you for your efforts in bringing to the attention of the world the little-known voices behind the microphones. A big thank you to Anthony Davis for what was a really nice chat. You can follow him on Twitter at TheAnthonyDavis, and you can also subscribe to his 5-Minute News podcast by visiting 5minute.news. Thanks for listening to the first episode of our second series. I've got some great guests lined up over the coming months. So to find out more, follow us on Twitter at TVBoothPodcast or visit tvboothpodcast.co.uk. I'll be back with another episode soon, but in the meantime, thanks again for listening. Goodbye. The TV Booth Podcast is hosted by Rob Francis. Copyright 2020. Ooh, the future.